thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. Today's a bit different uh, from other days. Those of you listening uh, to this as a podcast may not know the difference, but I'm actually videotaping it to put it up on our Family Action Council of Tennessee um, YouTube station in case anybody wants to uh, watch by video. And uh, so so here we go with the experiment today. And let me tell you what today's episode is going to be about or where I at least plan to end up. It's to focus on what it means to be sons of Issachar as citizens uh, in our nation. Uh, as persons who deal with public policy, persons who hold office, people who support those who hold office or run organizations uh, and as as pastors. Um, and, and of course, you recall in the Bible, the sons of Issachar were those who were said to understand their times so that they knew what Israel was to do. So, so that's what I want to do is to help... Uh, those of us in these categories, and I suspect that everybody falls into those categories except our children, perhaps, who don't vote, but they need to be trained because someday they will have a jurisdictional authority in civil government, and they'll need to know what they should do. And if we don't understand our times and what's taking place in our times at anything beyond a, a superficial level, we will not know what we should be doing. And, and, and I want to say that I, I think we're living in a time that is especially hard and, and, and perhaps, believe it or not, maybe even harder than in the early church. Because God has given to each of us who are adults a responsibility, a jurisdictional sphere of authority in the realm of civil government, a participatory form of jurisdictional authority that, you know, they didn't have. Uh, all they had to think about was what did you know Caesar require, and did it require them to do something God would say no? But but see, we participate in our government, public policy, and in the making of law, and and so a greater degree of wisdom and discernment and knowledge of the Bible is perhaps required now than was required at the time. So we're confronted with some difficult issues, and I think the worst thing that Christians and pastors can do is to not talk about them and to leave uh, leave ourselves undiscipled in this area of responsibility that God has given to us. Now, I want to put this in the context of last week's episode where we talked about the importance of the biblical doctrines of transcendence and eminence to our conception of not just the cosmos, but to law and to how Erie Railroad, a decision by the United States Supreme Court in 1938, uh, changed our conception of the cosmos and law and, and, and struck a blow against um, not just the Christian cosmology, but necessarily the Christian conception of, of law embedded in the Western legal tradition as it developed through the uh, papal revolution, the Germanic revolution, uh, 
launched by Martin Luther and the Puritan Revolution of the 1600s. And in, in 2015, in the decision Obergefell versus Hodges, essentially the United States Supreme Court sucked the last vestiges of meaning of transcendence and eminence out of, or at least the biblical conception of transcendence and eminence, out of America's jurisprudence. This idea of transcendence and eminence, uh, we say, oh, that's theology, and that's that's a complicated form of theology, and we just don't need that. But I, I think today you're going to understand why you do and the implications of it, because to get it wrong is to actually, in some ways, as I said last week, support same-sex marriage, support transgenderism, support the elimination of any objective parental rights. We, we conform our way to the thinking of the world, and then we're surprised when the world takes away the things that we would think about. And, and so we need to address that. Now, it's a little bit complicated. I, I get it. And as I listened to last week's episode, I realized that my explanation of eminence needed a little bit more refinement if you're going to appreciate what follows in the rest of today's podcast. And in fact, uh, I uh, described eminence in a, in a way that uh, w- was wrong. I had to cut it out of the podcast before I posted it. Because there's a biblical and an unbiblical conception of, of, of eminence. So um, what I'd like to do today is, is play that little clip and then explain it. And uh, this eminentizing of God really is is part of the the thought of Frederick Hengel, who had said that history is in essence the march of God through time and space, and and history is revealing God to us, and that's really just pantheism and heresy. Now, um, let me say part of my statement was true, part of it was false. But if you didn't know what was going on in my head, you could have gotten a wrong understanding. You see, uh, in fact, because we have a view of God that he is transcendent and imminent and he sustains and providentially directs all things, we do, if we could but see it, uh, have a revelation of God in history that's currently taking place. He's revealing more and more of himself and moving more and more towards his purposes that he stated in the Bible. So, for example, we read in Psalm 10 that God the Father has put his son on his holy hill and he plans to give all the nations to him. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, we read the same thing, that, that in Christ at the right time, all things are going to be joined back together in one through the mediator, Jesus Christ. So, so there is a, a revelation of God that is, is taking place. The story of God is not finished yet, at least in terms of time and space. So that part is, is true eminence, okay? But I implied that that was heresy when I meant to say what Frederick Hegel was talking about is that there's a continuity of being between God and the created world such that the world is participating in the being of God and the 
and time and history are actually the actualization of God. God is in the process of becoming, and of course, that kind of God cannot really be known because whatever he was isn't what he is today, and whatever he was and whatever he is today is not who he'll be tomorrow, right? So uh, Jesus Christ and God cannot be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And all the religious supporters that I have found so far of transgenderism and same-sex marriage are, in essence, pantheists. And that's what Frederick Hegel was, because you see, everything's changing, and God is more and more revealing himself in how we're changing, right? So um, God's changing, we're changing, and everything's just hunky-dory change all the time. There is no essence or meaning that stays the same, okay? So uh, the the point here is it comes back to what I said last week about the pastors and the Christian uh, persons who, who have said, well, all I care about is the marital relationship being formed in front of me. Is it a man and a woman? And, and it would be correct to say that the truth about marriage is immunitized in that couple. It is a real marital relationship. But the truth about what that marital relationship is is found in the transcendent God who has declared what it means to be man and woman and what a marital relationship is. So what is wrong is is not saying the two people in front of the pastor or the two people getting married is is unimportant uh, or is important. It is important, okay? But, but where we go wrong is not saying that that's actually true in every instance. There can be no such thing as a same-sex marital relationship. And we go wrong when the law, and, and by the nature of the authority resident in law, says the definition of marriage is not universal and applicable to all people at all times and in all places. And, and we go wrong when we don't say that any such law is not law, but is an unjust law, as Augustine said, as was repeated uh, in uh, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, repeating Augustine, that, that when a law says that marriage can be any two people, that law is, is wrong. It's denying the transcendence of God. It's denying the transcendent and that God is the one who gives definition and meaning to all created realities. So if we're not careful, see, we, we find that we've actually acquiesced to Erie Railroad and the abolition of the transcendent as a practical matter. And we've agreed with them. And uh, eventually we're gonna see transgenderism uh, become more and more accepted and parental rights more and more become uh, defined strictly by the, the government. There won't be any objective real parental rights that you can assert against the government because everything has been Immunitized, you see. So this this is really important stuff. Our theology does make a difference. And and note this that if God doesn't exist, if he doesn't reveal the truth about man and woman and the truth about marital relationships, then we can't have really a knowledge of what a marital relationship is. And we can say it's whatever we want to say. Yeah. 
In other words, the Obergefellians, the same-sex marriage proponents, can agree that a man and a woman are complementary, biologically speaking. Um, they can say that they even uh, are, are different in, in temperament, generally speaking. Um, they can say that man and woman are, in principle, intended to be reproductive beings. But from those scattered facts, we can't deduce as, as true, in an absolute sense, uh, what a marital relationship is, or that there is even any such thing as a marital relationship. And and so matters of pure biology and psychic phenomenon can't tell us what a marital relationship is. In fact, it's it only makes sense if your reasoning, your thinking, your common sense consciously or subconsciously uh, rest on the transcendent and imminent God. And that's the whole point Carl Becker makes in his book on the the um, heavenly city of the 18th century philosophers, which I would encourage you to read if you want to understand our, our times. So let me add one other little thing before I get to what do we do um, that I think will help us get some historical perspective here and, and be better at being sons of Issachar. Um, let's go back to Plato and Aristotle, who I mentioned in last week's episode. You recall that Plato tried to place the truth of things um, in, in some ideal or some form, um, and that the, the true nature of things partook uh, or, or participated in this ideal or this form, and that uh, we were like men in caves who could just barely see these forms. Uh, they were like shadows, but but the true nature of things was found there, not in the thing itself, okay? That was what philosophers would have called realism. And Aristotle has said, no, um, the only nature we can know about things, the only truth we can know about things are in the things themselves. And that was known as nominalism. You recall I talked about that last week. What Christianity did was it Christianized these two concepts by saying, yes, that relationship between that man and that woman is a marital relationship, but it points to not some mystical, unknown, ambiguous ideal, but it points us back to God. It is revealing to us who God is, okay? So, so we Christianize these pagan ideas, and you got to give them credit. Uh, Plato and Aristotle were grappling with ideas and thoughts and concepts about the nature of the universe, about cosmology, that we don't even give any thought to today. And, and that's what, again, makes our job so much harder, is that we're speaking into a culture that has no concept of what we're talking about. It's been eliminated by Erie Railroad and the cases that followed. So uh, if we don't get this, we really cannot be effective sons of Issachar. Uh, when we eliminate or acquiesce to the elimination of transcendence in our cosmology and to our conception of law, well, 
our, our thinking about the cosmos and about law falls short of the glory of God. And so if we're going to do anything in this area, uh, we have to recognize that we must grapple with both transcendence and eminence. And that has to be taken into account when we make our legal arguments or, or draft our, our, our legislation or evaluate our candidates, because otherwise we're not doing what is necessary to restore law. We're, we're not reconciling law or our cosmos back to God. So the best we could have is a biblical ethic that says this is right or this is wrong. But that then becomes strictly a power play by who can get enough votes to impose their will on another. And nothing is actually reconciled back to God. And that law will not and cannot produce the righteous society we would want because even God himself said, Law cannot produce righteousness. So to, to sum up what I've really said here briefly, if we're not looking for candidates for office who understand true transcendence and eminence and their relationship to law and civil government and public policy, uh, and, and to be honest, I don't know anybody that's training officials uh, or potential officials in, in that area. Maybe they are, praise God, but I... I I haven't run into it, at least. Um, then, then we're not doing, they're not doing what is needed to avoid cultural and legal death. And that's the nature of our cosmos, to turn away from the true God, the true knowledge of the true God, and the application of that truth to all things is to turn toward death. How God built the cosmos, right? And and that's not to say some candidates may not delay the inevitability of that, but um, but they're not going to restore anything. Let's put it that way. And and of course there there is an alternative, uh, so to speak, to death, and that's repentance, repenting of not caring about our theology and not applying our theology properly two areas of law and government and public policy. Uh, but then again, repentance is a form of death. It's, it's saying, I was wrong, was doing it wrong, and now I'm going to turn to God. And if we don't do that, I believe then we're doing what was said by the prophet Isaiah. We're adding sin to sin. So I think we need to get busy developing some statesmen and legal advocates that think in these terms. And, and explore how to do what they do within uh, this cultural climate in a way that would begin to restore a correct understanding of transcendence and eminence to our legal environment and to our culture and society in general. And, and the nice part is, well, not actually nice, the great part is, there, there's biblical witness for believing that if we will do those things, then we will meet success, if not in the short run, in the long term. And I hope you'll join me next week for that episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. 
God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.